0: You're listening to an Airwave Media podcast.
1: Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. I am a scientist. scientist. We gotta live on science, welcome to Unbiased Science, where we bring scientific method to the madness. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica Steyer. And Dr. Andrea Love. And this week, we are talking about yet another fad diet that has been making the headlines. This week, we're talking about the carnivore diet. Um, you were already chuckling. <laughs> well, I feel like um,
0: we could just have a podcast solely on the new fad diet that cropped up this week.
1: Well, it's that is very true. Um, but before we get into it, just a brief recap of last week. If you did not tune into last week's episode, it was the second part of a series that we did on TikTok like health hacking trends, I'd say. Right, Andrea? And so we specifically spoke about sea moss gel, um, cut onions around your house and putting them on the bottom of your feet, Um, also putting sliced potatoes in the bottom of your feet to stave off illness or um, cure illness. Um, We also talked about vabbing, menstrual masks, and putting garlic cloves up your nose. And I love, Andrea, that right before we hit record, you're like, so basically we made soup on our feet. We ate some sea moss gel and we rubbed things from our vagina on our body. <laughs> so <laughs> that sums it up pretty beautifully. <laughs> all right. All right. So, um, oh, and one other note. So yes, obviously we're on video. We're doing our best to, to keep this going. Um, but we are still figuring things out. So I'm currently hiding in my basement, just <laughs> praying that my dogs don't come down here. Um, but there's an extra echo- because I'm still getting this room set up. So bear with me. Andrea's having some camera issues. So just bear with us as we figure this out. We will work out the kinks. So let's let's get into it. So the carnivore diet, it's super trendy right now. It's making the rounds on social media. So unlike the keto diet, which we've talked about ad nauseum, (laughs) which aims to limit carbs, The carnivore diet basically bans carbs completely. So you're only permitted to eat meat, fish, eggs. Wait, is this the carnivore diet? Are you allowed to eat eggs in the carnivore diet, Andrea? Mm, That's
0: a good question, actually. I I feel like yes. Um, Okay. I think it's solely animal products. Um, Right, right. So I think also... Eggs are counted. I think cheese um, is also included as well. At uh, sometimes cheese and dairy is included, and then also like poultry and fish. So it's like really like really strict on like animal products only, um, with a really heavy focus on the meat component. Right.
1: No carbs. No plants strict ban on that. And I feel like there are probably some people who interpret it a little bit, like maybe some people eat eggs and some people don't, or some people eat cheese and some people don't. So, so let's get into it. We need to talk about the whole premise of the carnivore diet, which is that our ancestors, you know, survived on meat alone. And I know we're going to get into that because that's not true. Um, (laughs) and then there are also health implications of eating a meat only diet. So can you sort of set the Stage for why people are doing this?
0: Yes. Yeah, so essentially, someone on social media, um, well, actually, there were several people that basically suggested that this is called the ancestral diet, that before agriculture and farming existed, humans, prehistoric humans, whatever you want to call, um, you know, hominids, ate only animal products. They, you know, hunted and fished, and, and that's what they ate. And supposedly, you know, that made them healthier and extended their lifespan. Of course, we, we know that's not true. Lifespan of our ancestors is very short for a variety of reasons. But a lot of the proponents claim, again, that this is what our ancestors did um, and what humans are designed to do. And as a result, it's going to alleviate all these chronic illnesses that humans are plagued with. It's going to cure autoimmune disorders. They even claim often that it's going to somehow eradicate infections and other illnesses. A lot of proponents of the carnivore diet say that pesticides are harmful, that um, plants that produce their own natural toxins, we know plants produce a lot of chemicals to ward off things from eating them. Those are all harming their health. You know, starch is bad because that only came to be during the agricultural revolution You know, sugar is the enemy, and so we should be avoiding sugar, and the way to do that is to not eat any carbohydrates, any plants or vegetables, um, because, yeah, I mean, carbohydrates are sugars, basically. So um, this has become very popular, and there are a lot of very prevalent people on social media. There are ex-physicians who promote it, and we'll talk a little bit about some of those in the future, and they claim that, you know, homo sapiens evolved to be carnivorous. So, very quickly, you know, we know that other kind of fad diets have existed that that make similar claims, like the Paleolithic diet or the Paleo diet. And that one's a little bit different because they said that um, humans were hunter-gatherers, so they did also allow them to eat vegetables and fruits and nuts and seeds and things that you could forage for, presumably, in the wild. But you couldn't eat bread, you couldn't eat starches, you couldn't eat potatoes, things like that. Um, but actually, evidence has emerged that suggests that Paleolithic ancestors actually did make and eat rudimentary bread and and grains and so on and so forth. So, you know, very broadly speaking, there's actually no evidence that our ancestors did any of this or ate in these manners. And if you look at physiological evidence, fossil evidence of ancestral humans and also human architecture, even just our teeth demonstrate that we are meant to eat a lot of diverse types of food. So we have molars which are good for grinding things like plants that have lots of cellulose. um, And we have sharper incisors that are good for shredding meats. So ultimately, we are omnivores. We should be eating a broad and diverse diet of all things.
1: And there's a lot of really great research that we could link on our show notes, but exactly as you said, you know, our teeth, our digestive enzymes, the physiology of our guts, you know, these all point to an omnivorous diet, right? Um, And then when you look at other living primates, right? So the ones with guts that are most similar to ours, like monkeys and apes, They are composed of fruits and nuts, leaves, insects. So I I don't really understand where this idea came from. No, honestly, like. No, it's true. It's it's I don't. Yeah, I
0: mean, my guess is and this is what we see from pseudoscience is that someone found a paper on a. Repository Again, repositories like PubMed don't say anything about the quality of a paper, but they read something or even it could have been a completely non-peer-reviewed thing where someone made this claim and it sounded very convincing. And and again, you know, people are always looking for these quick fixes, like maybe they don't feel well. And so they're like, well, I'm going to try this very dramatic thing to change my habits and whether it be because they also changed other things in their lifestyle, um, or it could be partially due to placebo effect, they perceive that they feel better after these changes. And then it becomes this mantra of, you know, well, you know, I did X, Y, and Z, and that helped me feel better. Therefore, that must be the cure for, you know, ailment. Y. Right.
1: So to prepare for this, we obviously, you know, we're reading some of the claims for proponents of this diet. And I just want to read. So, So advocates of the carnivore diet contend that plant toxins and residual pesticides used in plant food production are harming our health. Um, They claim that starchy foods only became a major part of the human diet with the agricultural revolution and that, um, you know, eliminating all plant foods, you said this, Andrea, is the best way to go sugar-free for weight control and metabolic health. And there's a lot of focus on um, chronic illness um, as well as, uh, you know, obesity trends and things like that.
0: And before we get into, like, okay, yeah, there are some good things about me, and then, you know, what's the possible risk? You know, I do think it's important to understand that as humans have evolved, as technology has evolved, our lifespan has extended, and we've got a variety of public health measures that change causes of death, right? So, Hundreds of years ago, people were dying at a young age from infectious diseases and other sorts of acute illnesses, whereas now that we have vaccinations, we have sanitation, we have plumbing, we have water purification, we have antibiotics, we're no longer dying at young ages of acute illnesses, acute infections, but instead, yes, we are dying of diseases of the aged, chronic diseases, cancers, cardiovascular disease, atherosclerosis, things that accumulate as we age and progress as we age. So it's not necessarily accurate to say that all of a sudden humans are plagued with these chronic illnesses. It's more that those probably would have developed had we lived long enough for those to develop in You know, centuries past.
1: So we both eat meat, right? (laughs) We also eat plants and fruits and vegetables and all kinds of good stuff. I eat
0: everything indiscriminately.
1: I do too. So meat is a good source of some of the things our body needs, right? It's a great source of protein, iron. You know, I'm actually on my period right now. I was feeling a little anemic. I had a burger. I felt better. So yes, it's a great source of iron and zinc and selenium and uh, vitamin D, B6, B12. Um, these things are great, right? I know, you know, fish has omega three fatty acids and vitamin D and iodine and all of these things that our body needs. Um, but we also have to talk about a few things that meat, you know, meat's not a great source of, um, we know it's not a good source of Foley. Um, it's also not typically a great source of vitamin C or vitamin E, which we can get from, um, leafy greens, right. And fruits. Um, I know you, do you want to jump in? (laughs) Yeah,
0: I was just, I was just going to say, you know, I mean, the reason that, you know, fishermen often got scurvy is because they're living on a boat for months and months at a time and they were not eating, especially citrus vegetables, which are high in vitamin C and, and we can prevent scurvy now, you know, so that's great. Um, Right.
1: Right. Well, and also the people who are proponents of the carnivore diet, they, they'll talk about certain cultures, right? So they'll talk about the Inuit culture, for example. I feel like that comes up a lot. a right. Lot. Yeah. Um. But, you know, the type of meat that this particular culture is eating is different than what we're buying in the supermarkets. They're eating a lot of unsaturated fats. They're eating a variety of meats. They're also eating things like whale skin, um, which is very rich in vitamin C. So it's, you know, we're kind of comparing apples to oranges. Right. when Right.
0: Right. And also, you know, humans are genetically very diverse. Right. Populations um, very like Niche populations that are very isolated, like the Inuit, for example, have evolved certain things in their genetic profile to better allow them to extract nutrients and process nutrients and have, you know, a healthy metabolism compared to kind of the general mainland U.S. population at large.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, Andrea, another thing that meat does not have, and I know you have a lot to say about this, is fiber. Can we talk about that? I really want to talk about fiber. So,
0: you know, I think when we talk about the carnivore diet, yes, there's a lot of risks associated with really high fat diets, especially a lot of the carnivore diets are really fixated on organ meats um, that have a lot of fat or red meats, which often have a lot of saturated fats um, compared to fish and p- poultry and things like that. But the, for me personally, if you look at kind of the big picture, the biggest risk of a meat only diet, the carnivore diet is the fact that meat has no fiber in it whatsoever. So fiber is found, fiber is a type of indigestible um, carbohydrate that is found in plants, essentially. And people broadly, and there are different ranges for men versus women, but very broadly, people should be consuming up to 30 grams of fiber a day from their diet. So if you're eating a meat-only diet, you're consuming zero fiber. Fiber is essential for proper GI function. It is also very important in managing your gut microbiome, which we know is important. We can't say to the degree of which it's important, but we know that shifts in um, your microbiome can potentially have health impacts. But it's also important... In, in proper absorption of nutrients. So, particularly soluble fiber helps us extract additional LDL cholesterol so that it can be excreted. LDL cholesterol is what we often call the bad cholesterol, which can contribute to cardiovascular disease. Um, and it's also really important for moving movement, movement of your stool. So if we talk about proper GI function, there are so many things that are related to this. So During digestion, you are secreting a lot of enzymes from different organs in your GI tract, from your stomach, from your pancreas, from your liver, from all sorts of, uh, from your gallbladder. All of these enzymes secretions are really important to ensure that you're breaking down food properly, that you're extracting the appropriate nutrients, that you're secreting or excreting the things that you can't digest or don't need to digest, Um, and your bacteria that live in your gut are also helping you to extract additional nutrients and vitamins vitamins that humans can't synthesize ourselves. So if we're messing with the fiber intake of our diet, we can actually affect the organ function at large. So one of the first things that has been implicated in very high fat diets, not just carnivore diet, but also even with keto diet, which is a lot of, you know, it's it's low sugar, low you know, low fiber, low vegetable, et cetera, um, is pancreatitis. So pancreatitis is an inflammation of the pancreas. The pancreas is secreting very essential enzymes that are involved in proper digestion. Um, so it's causing inflammation of the pancreas. This can be either acute or chronic, um, and chronic pancreatitis can ultimately lead to a variety of other GI complications. More broadly when we look at like the intestinal tract, one of the biggest things, one of the biggest concerns of low fiber is diverticulosis, which is basically a weakening of the intestine so that normally you've got this kind of tract that is supported by muscles and diverticulosis causes those muscles to weaken and start to bulge and create these little pockets. And if those pockets get infected or inflamed, it progresses to diverticulitis. Now, this and diverticulosis are sometimes asymptomatic. So you might not even know you have it until it progresses to the point of potentially even needing
1: surgery or, or, or death. Um, so be, can I just jump in? I'm yes. sorry, just really quickly. So both of my parents, I watched them deal with diverticulosis and you know, these acute really incredibly painful flare ups of diverticulitis. And it got so bad that my father actually needed to have part of his colon removed. Um, I think it was the sigmoid, col- um, Right, the sigmoid colon is the yes. part that's usually removed, and he needed a colostomy bag. You know, and those. I mean, it was just brutal watching. Him. It was extremely painful. The recovery from the surgery was horrible, and it's just so interesting to me because you know people who are eating diets that are especially high in protein and fat, those things are difficult to digest, and so for those people, more than anyone, dietary fiber is it's yes. so important. Absolutely. Sorry, go on. Absolutely, yeah. No, no,
0: it's it's a great point. Um, and and so you know help. Wow. When diverticulosis progresses to diverticulitis and then diverticulitis gets worse, you can actually develop abscesses. So infections, pus buildup in those little bulges of the intestine. And then that can lead to perforation, meaning you're literally developing a hole in your intestine, in your colon, and then you have pus and and then you have intestinal contents, so feces leaking into your abdomen, essentially. That can obviously be cause life-threatening septic infections and obviously very severe severe illness, um, rectal bleeding, colonic stricture, which basically means that your colon muscles um, become so scarred from the damage that they narrow and then you can't properly pass stool to begin with. And then also things like fistulas. And fistulas are basically when one cavity of, of the body inappropriately connects to another. So often, you know, the, the intestines kind of disconnect you get a perforation, it reconnects to another part. And so now you're just messing with the whole route of transport of all these nutrients that you should be digesting and absorbing. So separate from diverticulitis and diverticulosis, because fiber is so important to extracting water, passing stool, the shape and the form of your feces, it can also lead to things like constipation. And when you're constipated, maybe you're straining. Maybe you have hemorrhoids, which are now varicose veins in your rectum. So you have bulging veins in your rectum, which can be very painful. Um, the, The damage, the inflammation caused by these sorts of things like diverticulitis can also lead to things like irritable bowel disease. We also know that low fiber is involved in a variety of cancers, particularly colon and rectal cancers, because again, your GI system is not functioning properly, but it also has been linked to increased rates of liver cancer. Again, liver enzymes are very important for for digestion and excretion, but even things like breast cancer and all cause mortality. So basically fiber is so critical. And when you have a diet that is avoiding all fiber, there are a lot of potential complications. And I think the biggest thing is that these complications don't present immediately. So it takes years for them to develop. So if you're avoiding fiber because you're following this carnivore diet, at the, t- at the moment in time, you'd be like, I feel great. But then five years down the road, now you have all of these chronic gastrointestinal issues that can lead to malabsorption, colostomy bags, potentially even death.
1: And I really don't think that people understand how dangerous constipation can be and how painful it can be. Just as a quick aside, so Ethan, my husband, uh, is an ER physician, and he talks often about literally having to scoop poop out of people's behinds. And, you know, yes, a lot of the time it's, you know, elderly people who aren't getting up and moving or drinking enough water. Um, There's a lot of uh, constipation related to, to opioids. But it's also, you know, young people who are eating incredibly high protein diets, not getting enough fiber, and then they're showing up to the ER, and my husband's scooping poop out of their bum. So, yep, yep. absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, we're talking about fiber. Fiber is one
0: type of carbohydrate that's really important for GI health. But I think it's also important to talk about, you know, the fact that this carnivore diet is kind of demonizing all sorts of other macronutrients. So, okay. you know, it's very heavily focused on protein and fat, but it's recommending essentially that you avoid nearly all carbohydrates. And there's no evidence to support this. You know, just like when we talk about other restrictive fad diets like the keto diet, whole grains, for Mm Fruits, vegetables, all of these things have obviously fiber, but they have a lot of other nutrients. They have a lot of, you know, folate, vitamin C, vitamin E. Vitamin E is required in order to help synthesize vitamin K and use vitamin K. So all of these things are typically gotten from eating carbohydrate sources, which are grains, legumes, fruits,
1: vegetables. Right. I think we also need to talk about how a lot of the meats that people are consuming um, are high in sodium, which is... Another thing that we have to talk about, because obviously high sodium is is dangerous, and so um, meats that are high in sodium are smoked meats, cured meats, salted or canned meat, um, fish or poultry, and this includes bacon, which we Americans <laughs> tend to eat a lot of, cold um, cuts, ham, hot dogs, sausages, sardines, caviar, and anchovies. So you have to be mindful of that. I think we should also distinguish between, um, you know, saturated and unsaturated fats. And maybe, Andrea, you, from a microbiome perspective, can sort of talk about the difference
0: So saturated fats, we often like lump into like animal fats. So when you have fats, the molecule is composed of like these fatty acid chains, which are carbon and hydrogens linked together in various orientations. So a saturated fatty acid basically means that every single bond space is is accommodated by a hydrogen, whereas an unsaturated fat means that There are places where there isn't a hydrogen, and instead you have what we call a double bond between two carbons. So instead of all the spaces being occupied by hydrogens, you have instead almost like a ladder. And so what that does is it changes the molecular structure of these fatty acids, and that changes ultimately how they interact with our body, but they also change some of the physical properties of them. So saturated fats are typically solid at room temperature. So these are going to be like your animal fats, your butters, your lard. Hard. Often if you're doing, you know, you're, you're taking bacon grease out of the pan and you let it cool down because you're going to use it for cooking later, that'll solidify. Whereas your unsaturated fats are typically liquid at room temperature because, again, they have more space. They don't have all these hydrogens. And those are going to be your vegetable oils. So olive oils, avocado oils, canola oils, and so on and so forth.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously we're worried about things like cholesterol, cardiovascular health. I mean, you know, I, I just, I can't even imagine. Imagine recommending that someone eat a meat-only diet for for anyway for, for a variety of yeah, reasons. Yeah. So
0: if you you know, if you look at this composition, you know, if you're eating only animal-based fats, those are predominantly going to be saturated fats. Exactly. And exactly. we know that saturated fats can be implicated in the progression or development of various chronic illnesses, particularly related to cardiovascular health. So if you're looking at kind of the consumption of saturated fats, saturated fats, again, in combination with low fiber, that can actually increase LDL cholesterol levels, um, which again, we call our bad cholesterol. That can increase the risk of cardiovascular disease or heart disease. And then, of course, if you actually look at kind of dietary composition, there actually was a meta-analysis. This included 15 randomized controlled trials, and they found that shifting dietary composition from a diet that was more predominant in saturated fats to either either polyunsaturated fats, so these are unsaturated fats with multiple double bonds in them, so again vegetable oils and similar, or carbohydrates, reduce the overall risk of cardiac events. Where a greater reduction in the risk of cardiac events was seen with a greater reduction in saturated fat intake. And I think it's also really important to note, you know, the proponents of these claim all these health benefits, but they This diet is actually in opposition to evidence-based methods to manage a variety of chronic conditions, including things like type 2 diabetes, where we know, and of course we'll get flack from this, but the Mediterranean diet, which is... In the medical literature, high in whole grains, high in vegetables, high in fruits, high in um, plant-derived proteins, vegetable oils, and so on. So, whole grains, fruits, veggies, legumes. Um, you know, moderate. Al- you know, moderate your alcohol consumption. Moderate or reduce your consumption of red meats, and and so on and so forth. Those di- diets actually are demonstrated to reduce diabetes risk on the whole, but also improve your blood blood lipid and glycemic index control. So it's very interesting to see that people are like, well, eat a lot of red meat, it'll control your blood sugar better when the evidence related to blood sugar moderation is actually more linked to fiber consumption, which again, you're going to find in those plants.
1: I think that the cardiologists listening to this episode will be very pleased, as well as the gastroenterologists and all kinds of doctors. Those
0: colorectal surgeons out there. (laughs) Mm
1: -hmm. Although I guess the carnivore diet's really... uh, keeping them in business. Yeah, I was going to say, oh, we are going to have less, less surgery cases. <laughs> yes. All right. So now let, let's just chat, um, at least briefly about environmental impacts, um, because there are environmental impacts of, of meat eating. Right. Um, and so again, you know, we are not, we, we would be hypocrites if we said that you shouldn't eat any meat. We, um, we eat meat. Um, but it's, you know, it's a fact that we do cut down forests to create pasture and land to meet the rising demand for animal feed, right? We know that livestock production is the second largest source of greenhouse gas emissions and that animal farming does utilize scarce non-renewable resources. And there are some options that are more sustainable than others. So it's recommended that if possible, when possible, um, buy your meat from local farmers or from farms that, you know, grass feed their livestock. When possible, opt for pasture-raised because that is the more sustainable choice. You know, fish, chicken, and pork tend to be more environmentally friendly options um, as opposed to um, to beef. Um, seafood typically has a lower carbon footprint, so things like mussels and oysters and scallops and clams um, those tend to be seen as more sustainable. Andrea, anything you want to add on the environmental?
0: front? Yeah, I mean, I think again, it's a really it's a really tricky you know balance, right? Like we try to limit how much meat we consume. We even do try to limit how much fish and shellfish we consume, um, you know, for a variety of reasons, but one of which is obviously the environmental impact. We know as the global population rises, we don't physically have the acreage to support everyone who is a meat eater from just pasture grazed, you know, animals alone, which is why a lot of these, you know, factory type farms exist, um, because there is a demand on meat. And, you know, there's again, this balance behind supply and demand and also being ecologically conscious. And so you know when these types of diets gain popularity, now you're increasing the demand for meat and you're you're creating this vicious cycle that I think many people are not necessarily aware of.
1: And there's a whole other issue of treatment of animals, right? Yes. And animal welfare yes. and, um, you know, humane, um, Absolutely. you know, all, all of that stuff. Absolutely. And so that's why, you know, we, you know, in our family, we do always try to avoid like factory farm you know all that kind of stuff and buy from local farms whenever possible but of course you know we realize that that's not always an option yes. for, for everyone exactly um all right so can we chat about the liver king yes who is the liver king mm-hmm. i only recently found out about him and i was horrified because i think he's the guy who's always just eaten yeah he's just raw- chomping
0: on some <laughs> raw liver yeah yeah just chomping on a raw beef liver and in- Videos and stuff. So, and,
1: and by the way, I actually like liver. I mean, it's I actually, do too. I love, but but cooked, cooked. Yeah. <laughs> so cooked. I, you know, I'm Jewish. I grew I grew up eating chicken liver and onions and chopped liver and all that stuff. But yes cooked, yes, cooked, cooked, cooked. Please, cooked. please cook okay. the liver. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so who who is the liver king? Andrea? Yeah. So, I mean,
0: he's a, he's a guy on TikTok, basically, who who claimed that he was eating like his ancestors and he was curing all of these illnesses. Right. Fatigue and inflammation, inflammation, the buzzword of the day, which I'm really excited that we're going to talk about more soon, um, but other diseases. And it's going to make you mentally fit and physically fit. And you're going to bulk up and build all this muscle. And, you know, he had millions and millions of followers on TikTok and, and Instagram and he would post these very clickbait videos of him eating bull testicles or cow brain or raw liver and of course, sold a lot of supplements, and they were all these ancestral supplements that had all these ground-up dried beef liver and organs and other sorts of supplements. And of course, he offered solicited and unsolicited diet and exercise advice, and he was making hundreds of millions of dollars a year. And he claimed, he was very muscular, and he claimed that his body and his fitness were a result of his supplements and his carnivorous diet, and of course, it turned out that he was spending thousands of dollars a month on anabolic steroids. Mm, Um, So, yeah, he was kind of a fraud, and unfortunately, he got a lot of people on his bandwagon of this carnivore diet, especially this raw organ meat fanaticism. I think it's also important to note that there are a lot of other public figures that tout this carnivore diet, including Joe Rogan, um, Sean Baker, which many people use this authority, like, oh, he's a doctor. He was an orthopedic surgeon who wrote a book called The Carnivore Diet. He lost his medical license in part for incompetence to practice. Mm -hmm. So, um... Maybe we don't want to use him as a credible source, uh, especially because his medical specialty was orthopedic surgery. Um, and then, of course, you've got the Peterson. So, Jordan Peterson and his daughter, Michaela, they've cherry picked a particular study that, you know, maybe Jess, you want to talk about the study? I, <laughs> I do think you do.
1: Because it, this, it just really bothers me. So, okay. So, let's just talk about this study. So, Michaela in particular, I, I saw a video of her. She, I don't know, she was testifying somewhere about this Harvard study. And of course, if you're saying Harvard, you know, you immediately assume it's credible, but let, 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 us chat about it. So the study was, uh, they basically reported high, uh, no health benefits and high satisfaction. They saw 90% of people, th- these are the claims, 90% of people who try the carnivore diet saw improvements. And so here, I'm just reading these quotes. So, um, she was testifying to say that uh, meat is the only food that people can survive on as a single food without supplementing anything else. It's the perfect elemental diet for a sick person. But let's, let's talk about this study that they're talking about. It was actually just a social media survey that was conducted among people who stayed on the carnivore diet for six or more months and it asked them how they felt, um, you know, or what they decided to report after trying the diet. So everything was self-reported, um, nothing was, you know- uh, No lab values. Yep. Exactly, yep. nothing was validated with lab values or medical assessments or anything like that. And another really big thing to note is that there was major selection bias (laughs) because the survey was conducted among people who stayed on the diet for six or more months. Right. So, you know, presumably if they're staying on the diet, they They liked it. They they liked it. Exactly. (laughs) What about all the people who stopped the diet or who had problems with the diet? So this particular study, I mean, and again, it's my goodness, the Harvard study, the Harvard study is being, you know, touted as evidence. I just wanted to debunk that
0: No. And also, you know, they didn't actually verify what people are even eating on the diet, the people who are self-reporting. And again, that is a huge gap in obviously study design. But again, I think the bigger issue is how it's being co-opted and misrepresented by these people who are promoting this diet and being very vocal about it. And I think, again, this is, this is a phenomenon we see really across the pseudoscience spectrum is that it's this like conviction and sticking to your guns and that's very very um that's a characteristic of pseudoscience where it's unchanging no matter what the evidence suggests whereas science evolves with new data Um, and it has nothing to do with their qualifications because you know none of these people are actually qualified to speak on diets whatsoever certainly not cardiovascular health or things like that but it's how It's their personal testimony, right? It's this anecdotal appeal to emotion, the claim that, well, I did it and it cured me of this. I did it and I felt this. And people... You know, there's a lot of people who struggle with a lot of, you know, ailments, health issues for a lot of different reasons. And it can be very compelling when people hear these stories. And and again, just like with The Liver King, some of those stories could be completely false, right? Completely right. fabricated, right? He was not getting fit by eating raw meat. He was getting fit by taking steroids. Right. But his viewers don't know that. So they see this and they watch this and they think that maybe this could work for them.
1: Well, and you just like really beautifully articulated like the plight of researchers, right? Is that we know it is true. Like anecdotes are more powerful when you have a face and, you know, when you put a face to a story and you're, you know, as you said, appealing to emotions. That is so much stronger than, you know, a study was conducted. You know, we were talking about, (laughs) you know, thousands of faceless data points. But also, can you
0: just talk in that voice from now on? (laughs)
1: Right. <laughs> sure thing. <Yeah. laughs> also, can we just give a little um, disclaimer that people should not be eating raw liver? Yes. Um, the or pathogens and I, I I just, just, anything. raw anything. Yeah. Yes. Right. Raw me. meat in general <laughs>
0: is not a good idea. So there's a lot of different pathogens that can get in there. Raw liver, you've got campylobacter. This can cause very severe gastroenteritis. Um, raw meat in general, you know, it's not what you're getting at the grocery store is not prepared or processed in a way that it's going to be safe to consume raw. You've got E. coli, salmonella, all sorts of other potential pathogens from the meat itself or from the processing facility. And even with raw fish, if it is not sushi grade certified, there's a very high rate of parasitic worms that live in fish just broadly. One in right. particular is Anisakis worms, which often are called herring worm. Um, and these are increasing in prevalence in fish globally for a variety of reasons, including climate change. But ultimately, when you eat that, you can get very severe GI symptoms, often looks like food poisoning, but it's because you have roundworms living in your gut. Um, so yeah, just don't, don't eat raw meat, um, you know, unless it's been certified and tested and, you know, all of those sorts of things.
1: The last thing I want to say, and then I think we're going to wrap up is that there really is, I think this big psychological component to all of, all of, um, these fad diets. It's like this sense of belonging. So I think the people who are part of this, who, who do this diet, they call themselves the tribe. And it's uh, almost like this like culty, like group, you know, they're in it together, you know, especially if people are, you know, they're maybe they're, they're trying to improve their health and they're believing these claims, you know, and then they're doing it as a part of a group of with other people. Like there's just, we, we can't write off the, the psychological, right. You know, basis for so much of this. And I just want to give the disclaimer that I always give, you know, if you're someone who has tried this or has considered trying it, like we get it, like you're seeing claims it's being pushed in your face and you know, social media and people who's saying that it, that it worked. But you know, again, we're here to tell you. As compelling as those anecdotes might be, there are many reasons. I mean, I feel like we really, you know, the the whole basis for the diet, the health impacts of the diet, the environmental impacts of the diet. There's so many reasons why you should not try the carnivore yes. diet. Yes.
0: Yes. Yeah. And and of course, you know, let's just bring it back. There's there's actually no evidence to suggest that our ancestors or even. Humans, primates are carnivorous primarily, you know, and in fact, if you actually look at fossil records and ancestral records, humans were farming and gathering before they were raising livestock. So, um, you know, humans are omnivores. They have a diverse and varied diet that should have a lot of fiber in it, which you're getting solely from plants. Um, and, and I,
1: an inter- oh, yeah. No, go ahead. I, I was just going to say maybe in the future, because I would imagine that there are people who are listening to this who are maybe you know vegetarian or vegan, and they're like, oh, you know, they're sort of saying the opposite that you know meats or you know e- eating meat at all is is bad for a variety of reasons. And maybe we could tackle that on a yeah, future episode. Yeah, and
0: we are going to tackle things like fiber, prebiotics, probiotics. You know, I know we've cop- talked about probiotics Supplements, but we are going to talk about a lot of that as well as gut health and poop in um, future episodes too. Yes. Um, but I think the big TL TLDR here is that you know typically any fad diet of any kind are, are generally not good, especially those such as the carnivore diet which restrict major food groups, you know, or, or restrict you to only a single food group. Um, you know, particularly in this case, there are a lot of potential health risks that just don't seem worth it. Um, you know, and of course, if you do have questions. Please get resources from clinicians who have expertise in a relevant field uh, and try to not take that sort of medical advice from uh, a steroid user on TikTok. Uh So all right, Andrea, take us home. All right. So thanks for tuning in today. We hope you learned a thing or two. And if you want more Unbiased Science, please check out our Substack subscription. It's a really nice way to support us with a $5 a month um, subscription fee, which helps support our efforts over here at the pod. You do get a direct line to Jess and myself, uh, part of membership to a private Facebook group, and we do have a monthly live Q&A. So check it out at theunbiasedscipod.substack.com. Next episode, we will be discussing endocrine health and endocrine disrupting chemicals what's real and what's not and we will of course continue to provide updates on all things science and health related on our social media accounts so be sure to follow us on instagram facebook linkedin and twitter at unbiased and very quickly before we wrap up i'm pleased to announce that the american lyme disease foundation now has a twitter account too and you can follow that at at American underscore lime. Catch you next time on the pod, your trusted source for no nonsense, just science.